Morning, Transit family. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Um, quick announcement. We have a birthday in the house, actually a couple birthdays. Pastor Lay Elder, Saju Matthew. He turns 35 this morning. He turns 35 today. And then Hassan over there. I know you all share the same birthday, but happy birthday to you as well. So will you get a moment? Sing happy birthday to him. Um, well, as that... Uh, Bumper video showed we were not in the Sermon on the Mount anymore. We are now in Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah all the way up until the beginning of December to Advent. So the next four months. You might be asking, why are we, why do, like, how do you go about choosing uh, which book of the Bible that we go through from the pulpit? Do you all, the elders, have like a wheel in the back office that you spin with all the books of the Bible, and, like, and it's like, yes, that's actually how we decide. Okay, no, that's not how we decided. We believe uh, the Lord kind of led us to Nehemiah for this specific season, for a specific reason for our church. And so for the next four months, more than us just gathering together for a corporate study of a book of the Bible for the next four months, what we want these, four, these next four months to be about is the corporate collective pursuit of our king through the book of Nehemiah. Does that make sense? where we together, instead of just kind of uh, sitting and, and learning and studying, which we, we honor the scriptures and we want to study the scriptures, but uh, uh, more than that, we want to come together every Sunday these next four months and seek the Lord's wisdom and guidance on what he's inviting us to build, all of us to build here and now in and through the transit church, okay? I think sometimes, um, anyone here been uh, doing some yard work recently in their house? Spring, summer, I see a hand raised, yeah. Isn't there something, isn't, isn't there like, in comparison to all the other work that's out there, there's something so satisfying after a long, hard day of yard work. And some of you Gen Zers might not know what yard work is, but no judgment. Um, but after a long day, like you've mowed the lawn, you've been moving mulch beds, you know, mulch bags to, to remulch the beds, and you've moved stuff in your yard from over there to like over here, and you're like really proud of that, right? And then after a long day, what do you do? You kick up your heel, heels, you crack open a cold one, uh, a lime seltzer, and, uh, and you rest, and you say, and you have the mentality, my work is done, it is finished. There's nothing else to be done. And I think sometimes, uh, we're all guilty of this to a certain regard, is that this is how we approach um, church life, is that we come here and we just say, ah, it's, there's nothing to be done. It's all finished. All the walls, right, is about rebuilding the walls, all the walls have been rebuilt. There's, there's no brokenness to be restored, right? And we know that on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And that for those of us who have trusted in Christ, his work of salvation is finished forever in our lives, never to be taken from us. But the truth of the matter is this, is that as long as we are here on this side of glory, our ministry of reconciliation never ceases, Right? It never ceases. Our ministry of reconciliation never ceases. As we went through the book of Acts last year, we saw that Jesus Christ, right before his ascension, essentially passed the baton to his followers, right? Jesus essentially said to his followers, what I began, I now pass to you, and you finish what I've started. But empowered by the Holy Spirit and under the grace of God, that my ministry is now entrusted to you to go, that ministry of reconciliation, and the restoration of all things is extended to the church to go to the ends of the earth and finish what Jesus Christ has started. He's saying, I've laid the foundation. Now you, the church, start building upon it. So what I'm getting at is this. As long as there's still sin and brokenness in this world, there's still work for followers of Jesus to do, right? There's still work for us to do. And so we don't want to crack open the cold one yet because we're not at the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? We're not there yet. We're not home yet. And so all that to say, how does this tie into the book of Nehemiah? This is what the book of Nehemiah, I believe, is about. The people of God rallying together collectively around a common vision, seeking the Lord, and rolling up their sleeves and getting to work, and through thick and thin, bringing restoration to God's city for his glory and for the good of the nations. And so the theme of this sermon series you probably say this often, the theme is building something beautiful together, right? I think that's uh, one way we can talk about the work of the church that Jesus Christ has entrusted to us, is we're called to build something beautiful, right? That's the ministry of reconciliation 
uh, hearts being restored back to God, marriages, families being restored, um, us ushering in God's kingdom of peace and love and justice and righteousness. Let's build something beautiful together. So throughout these next four months, what we're going to do, and I'm going to call all of us to a corporate fast for 21 days after this, so uh, I hope you didn't come fasting this Sunday, because we're going to start uh, uh, tomorrow, August 1st. I'm going to talk more about that. Don't leave yet. Um, <laughs> I was like, man, I need to go eat something before we start fasting. <laughs> Um, these next four months, what we want to do is we want to seek, we want to link arms and seek God's face together. And, you know, in the book of Revelation, there's seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches, and all those letters are different. And a common prayer that I pray as a pastor of this church is, Jesus, if you were to write a letter to the transit church, what would it say? What would it say? And that's why, that's why we want to seek God's face in prayer and fasting and say, Jesus, what's the letter you're writing to the transit church? Maybe some of that letter would include encouragement. Jesus jumping up and down on the sidelines saying, transit family, you're doing this so well. Keep running. Keep fighting. Keep contending here. Keep doing that. But hey, this thing over here that you're doing, you, you can stop doing that. We don't need you to do that. And the people out there don't need you to do that either, right? Or here's some things I want you to stop doing. Here's some things I want you to start doing. What's the letter What's the letter? And so we, we, the elders, want to invite you in to this corporate pursuit of seeking God's guidance of where he's leading us, seeking God's face through the book of Nehemiah and see where he wants us to roll up our sleeves and start building something beautiful together. So with that said, before I say anything else, let's read God's word, dive in, and pray. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. Verses will be on the screen. That projector got fried sometime this week, so you got nothing over there. Sorry, guys. Turn your attention to your left. All right. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that unless you build the house, the labor is built in vain. And so, Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing and the work you've done and the work you're going to do, Lord Jesus. But we, we come to you humbly, Lord God. And we want you to build the house, Lord Jesus. We want you to get the glory for what you want to do, for what you're inviting us to. Not that we puff out our chests and say, this is what the transit church has done. And look at where the varsity level is. It's not about that, Lord. We want you, Lord, to build the house. We want to be faithful servants and point everybody to you, Lord Jesus. And so all of us together, Lord, we humble ourselves this morning. We say, show us and lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit, King Jesus, for where you want to take us. Jesus, I believe that you have a next step for each person in this room, a, a different next step for each person. Because the good shepherd, your feet, it's all, you're always leading us somewhere. You're always leading us from the, from the wide path to the narrow path of righteousness and repentance and obedience. So you, would you, Holy Spirit, as we go through this text today and this sermon series, would you reveal to your precious people where you're extending your nail-scarred hand and saying, come and follow me. Maybe it's repentance from sin. Maybe it's uh, salvation. Or maybe people in this room have never gotten on their knees and and look to the cross and said, Jesus, I need you. I need the forgiveness. I want to be restored to fellowship with you. Maybe that's the extension of your nail-scarred hand this morning, of salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And maybe for some of us, as simple as, hey, serving on one of our department teams or whatever it is, or inviting our neighbor over for dinner that doesn't know Jesus and just loving them, loving the socks off of them for the sake of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come. We surrender our hearts to you to your word, and we just pray that you would move. We'd open up our hearts to receive, Jesus, what you want for us and what you want for this church body, because this is yours, Jesus. This belongs to you. This church belongs to you. It's your church. You bought it with your blood. You hold the title and the deed. 
And we, so we surrender our plans to you, Jesus, and we say, Sovereign Lord, King of Kings, the Good Shepherd, lead and guide us for where you want us to go and what you want us to do and what you want us to be about. So bless us, bless the preaching of your word. Would you increase and magnify Jesus? And I pray that I would decrease in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. All right, so I would ask the question, has everyone seen Star Wars? But I, I'm positive that almost every hand would raise. But then I need to ask the follow-up question is, if I were to say, do you guys under, when I'm talking about like the, the slow open to Star Wars, you guys know what I'm talking about, the letters on the screen that kind of go back and the music's playing and it's boom, you know, gives you a historical recap of where you're at in episode three or four or six, because those are the only true Star Wars episodes, episodes three through six. And so what I'm getting at is if there was an opening reel for our text today, Nehemiah, it might look something like this. Because if we don't have a historical backdrop, we have no idea what's happening in Nehemiah, okay? So imagine with me that this is the reel that is playing to open up Nehemiah 1. The year is 445 BC, and we find ourselves in Persia, modern-day Iran. Since the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 586 BC, God's people have found themselves living in exile and bondage to Babylon. And when the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, the exile and bondage of God's people simply transitioned from the tyrannical hands of the Babylonian Empire to the hands of the Persian Empire. And God's city and God's temple in Jerusalem is still in a heap of ruins. But then something shocking happens. Persian kings begin to send waves of exiles back to God's city Jerusalem. The first wave was led by Zerubbabel in 538 BC, and another wave followed it, which was led by Ezra in roughly 458 BC. And both of these waves of exiles returning to Jerusalem led ultimately to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the reestablishment of the priesthood, and beginning the work of repairing the walls of the city. And since that second wave of Ezra, and by the way, Ezra comes before Nehemiah in your Bibles, since that second wave with Ezra, 13 years have passed, and there are still exiles in Persia who missed the first wave and missed the second wave. And one of those exiles is named Nehemiah and the Star Wars reel, okay? Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Um, if not, I'll throw some resources your way so you can research this. But what do we know about Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah and in our text? Simply put, we're not actually given much information about Nehemiah. Um, but given uh, the year we're in, the setting we're in, his vocation, uh, what most biblical scholars agree on is that it's almost guaranteed that Nehemiah never once stepped foot on Jerusalem soil. Born in exile, raised in exile, um, and uh, so on and so forth. And yet what we'll see is this, is all, although he was born in exile and raised in exile, against all odds, Nehemiah still loved the God of his ancestors with all of his heart. He loved the Lord and he longed to see the day when all God's people returned to a completely restored Jerusalem as the prophets foretold. Jerusalem was, that, uh, was to be that city on a hill, that place where all the nations would be blessed. Jerusalem, the city, was that place where God's presence would dwell in the midst of his people, in the temple, in the midst of his people, and God, through his enthroned king, from the line of David, would rule over his people and the nations in perfect peace and justice and righteousness forever. That's what Jerusalem meant to the people of God at the time of Nehemiah. And what is absolutely wild is that against all odds, born and raised in pagan uh, Babylon, Persia, in exile, is that Nehemiah had a heart for the Lord. He had a, a yearning and a longing for God's city to be restored as the prophets foretold after the exile. He was a man after the king and after the kingdom. And why do I say against all odds? Because what we know at the end of chapter one in Nehemiah is that he tells us a key detail about his life, his vocation. Hey, Nehemiah, what do you do for a living? I'm cupbearer to the king, is what he says. He just kind of throw away the line. And now I was cupbearer to the king in verse 11. And listen, if you're a slave in Persia, cupbearer ain't a bad gig, all right? Like there's plenty of gigs you can have uh, as an exile in Persia. One could be like you're in the middle of nowhere in the ancient Near East, 
uh, with ancient tools and methodology, like just hauling granite slabs out of the side of a mountain. Okay, that could be your role. What a cupbearer did was essentially uh, this, is that kings didn't want to get poisoned back in the day. So you were uh, in the king's palace and by the king's side, and whenever he wanted to drink the finest of wines, because he's king, in all the ancient Near East, and because he's a Persian king, he probably drinks a lot, you drink that wine before he does. And your only job is to simply drink the wine and see what happens to your body, right? Like, worst thing that can happen is like, hey, you get poisoned and die. Like, okay, like, it's kind of a big deal. But if you don't get poisoned, it's a sweet gig, right? He, you just drink some wine. The king looks at you and like, you start twitching, you know, whatever, does it. And then he takes the cup and he's like, hey, give me that. And you're like, ah, oh, just one second. This is, this is a good batch. And uh, that's the gig. That's the cupbearer gig, okay? It's a pretty sweet deal in my humble opinion, uh, out of comparative, relatively speaking. And where we find Nehemiah now is he gives another key de- detail. He's in uh, Susa. And uh, what uh, biblical scholars uh, tell us about Susa is that it was essentially the five-star winter resort for Persian kings. That's where we find Nehemiah, in the king's winter resort, sipping and swirling the finest of wines in Persia. And then there comes a day in Nehemiah's life that changes absolutely everything. Uh, a lot of us have had moments in our lives like this, definitive moments where maybe the Lord touches us or maybe something happens that's uh, uh, agonizing, and then you know you, from this moment, you know that your life will never look the same moving forward. And this is a moment that came for Nehemiah. Verse 1 through 2. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, and by the way, you guys are going to have to get used to some me botching some weird Hebrew names uh, throughout this sermon series, that Hanani, we got a lot of names coming up, just go read uh, the rest of Nehemiah, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So let's stop right here. There's a, there's a little bit of fa- family reunion taking place. What we know later on, and what most scholars agree upon, is that Hanani was actually not like a a brother in the proverbial sense, like a fellow Israelite, that was, but he was actually Nehemiah's brother, like same mom and pop. And so there's kind of a reunion that's taking place, and we don't know how long it's been since Nehemiah and his brother have connected. We don't know if Nehemiah has gotten any news since what's happened 13 years ago with the reestablishment of the temple and the reestablishment um, of the priesthood there, and, and they began the work of rebuilding the walls. We don't know what happened. But if you put yourself in the shoes of these few verses here, you have to imagine the hugs, the tears, the laughter, and you have to imagine what anyone in Persia, an Israelite in Persian exile would ask his, his brother and his fellow Israelite brothers that came from God's city. He's on the edge of his seat, right? And they're, they're catching up all this stuff, but he's going, tell me about Jerusalem. What's the temple like? What's the presence of God like in the temple? In the past 12 to 13 years, what are like, like, where's the, what's the city like? I, I imagine the walls have been rebuilt. Like, like there's, there's commerce, there's trading. Like, people are thriving. The city's growing. Tell me what it's like. And this is what, this is what was the response that Nehemiah got in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken and its gates are destroyed. fire. So just like that, Nehemiah's kind of daydreams over the years in exile when he heard the temple was rebuilt, uh, his daydreams of what Jerusalem could be like and the temple would be like are shattered. The walls that were being rebuilt were completely burned down and shattered. The the gates to the city were burned down. Um, This is not in reference to the destruction that King Nebuchadnezzar made in 586 B.C., this is in reference to uh, probably some effort to rebuild the walls, and they almost completed them until enemies of God's people destroyed those walls uh, by fire and all sorts of stuff. That's what it says, destroyed. The gates destroyed by fire. And so historically what we know is that if a city didn't have walls, it didn't have any protection. It didn't have any protection. It's essentially like this. Like if you want to imagine what it's like living in a city without walls, in uh, that culture, it's like, well, take all the windows and doors off of your house and imagine how safe you feel at night, right? There's no defensive walls and defensive gates to keep out an army, large or small. You are, you're pretty much hopeless to defend yourself. And the implication of that is this, is that all the momentum 
that the first wave and the second wave of exiles, the blood, the sweat, the toil, the conflict, the persecution, the tears, all of that, all of that work to reestablish the temple and the priesthood could be gone and forfeited in an instant if the walls are torn down. And here's the response of Nehemiah when he heard this. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The picture we get is it's almost as when Nehemiah hears this word, it's almost like he's struck with lightning and he just crumples on the ground. It's in a fetal position, a pool of tears on the floor, uh, maybe snot on his beard as he is weeping. Like this is an ugly cry. Uh, you could probably hear the groans all the way back to Jerusalem. And the news for Nehemiah of the state of God's people and God's city absolutely crushed him. Not for a day, it says for days he mourned, for days he mourned. And what's interesting, if not fascinating, if we put ourselves in the shoes of Nehemiah, his vocation, where he's been his entire life, he knows nothing different, is this news of what's taking place in Jerusalem has zero impact on his day-to-day life. It has zero impact. Tell me in, in 445 BC when you get this news and you're in Susa with what's happening in Jerusalem, there's no internet, there's no phone calls, there's no Zoom meetings, there's no live stream of what's taking place. It doesn't affect his day-to-day, right? It has almost zero impact on his day-to-day life. And what I'm getting at is this, is that when hearing this news, Nehemiah could have responded a whole lot differently. He could have responded with apathy. He could have responded with indifference. His response could have been, man, guys, wow, that's so tough. I'm so sorry that, you know, the, the remnant there has to, has to go through that. Um, you know, you guys haven't asked me how I'm doing. I'm living my blessed life now. Uh, I'm in the king's palace. Uh, God's favor and blessing and grace has just been over me. I got prosperity. I got a good, God, a good, good job, good gig that I'm probably going to ride this thing out until I die or get poisoned by wine. Um, but hey, real quick, why don't you guys, hey, the king's passed out drunk. Let's, let's sneak into his wine cellar. We got a good Chardonnay that came in. You guys want to drink? And then I'll give you like some palace swag, maybe like uh, some slippers and robes and like a Yeti with a king seal on it. You can take back to, like, that could have been his response, right? If we put ourselves in his shoes, like the citadel he was in could have been his apathy because our apathy is the citadel that we build to keep ourselves from having a burden for people that are broken and lost and therefore don't have to, be, to act upon those burdens. That's a citadel. Our comfort is a citadel to protect our God, a pleasure and comfort. That's the citadel that he could have been in. But that's not the king that he wanted to bow down and serve. It was the king of Persian comfort and wine. He, no, he served Yahweh the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And where his, and what I'm getting at is this. Your tears are a direct path to your heart's deepest treasure. Your tears are a direct path to your heart's deepest treasure. What you find yourself burdened and grieved over and weeping over reveals what your heart values and cherishes. Okay? I was downtown, I think 2018, when the Capitals, Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup. And uh, I've shared this illustration before, but um, I grew up being a Washington Capitals fan from, I grew up playing hockey and I loved the Capitals. And there came a day when I was downtown in DC on day, on game five, when they beat the Las Vegas Knights to win the Lord Stanley Cup. And there came a moment outside the stadium when Alexander Ovechkin hoisted the Stanley Cup over his head and everyone went nuts and everyone started crying and cheering and wiping away tears. Oh my gosh, more guys got a rubber puck in the back of the net than the other guys. This is amazing, I can't believe it, you know? And yet, and yet, and, and my, my wife asked me the next day, I got back really late, she goes, how was it, what happened? I was like, I'm not gonna say it was the best night of my life, but it was up there, because obviously marrying you was the best night of my life. But, uh, <laughs> and so what I'm getting at is this is, what are we weeping over? What are we grieving over? Is it about the kingdom of God advancing? Are we weeping over the lost that don't know Jesus? Are we weeping over those without hope and without God in the world? And they're, and they're scratching and clawing, trying to find the Jesus that we've graciously found only by his grace. Is that what we're weeping over? 
It reveals what we truly value and where our hearts are at. And what if before we start building something to advance the kingdom of God, what if before we start building, God wants to see his people burdened again in the prayer closet, crying out, tears on the floor, crying out for their loved ones, crying out for the renewal of his spirit to come, genuinely grieved over that which grieves the heart of Christ? What if we can't actually truly build and advance God's kingdom without genuine brokenness? Because if we don't have genuine concern and compassion and brokenness and grief, then maybe it's a faulty, false foundation that we're building upon. And so what I'm getting at is this, is maybe as we go through this fast for 21 days, I'm talking more about it here, this is a little side note, is that before we ask God for his kind of building blueprint and his guidance, what if all of us collectively said, God, give us your burden for this city. Give us your, your burden for our neighbors. Give us a burden for the nations that don't know you. Lord, I haven't cried. I haven't wept in a long time over things of the kingdom. Lord, would you, would you, here's my apathy, Lord. Here's the citadel that I have built. It's called the American dream, and I've, I've surrounded it with my walls of white picket fence, you know, all that stuff. And Lord, what are you calling me to? Lord God, I want my heart to be grieved. My heart is just kind of dull. I haven't, I'm not really committing any uh, egregious sins, but I, there's a dull apathy. There's no zeal. There's no fire in my belly anymore for you, Lord, for loving you and for loving loss. Maybe that's what God wants us to pray into and press into. And maybe as all of us get that burden, the blueprint will come as we go. And so that's a great prayer to be praying. And in our text, what we see, this is what we see, is that before any walls were being rebuilt by Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem, before any uh, brick and mortar was laid, before any troops were rallied, before any of that, Nehemiah cried. Before any walls were rebuilt, Nehemiah wept. And he had grief in his bones, in his belly, and where did that sorrow lead him? This is, the, this, is, this is why we need burden. This is why we need grief. This is why we need a godly grief, not an ungodly grief, but a godly grief, because it always leads us to the feet of our king in prayer and fasting. This is what we see in verse 4. Nehemiah says again, I'll say it again, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When he says that I wept and mourned for days, He's not talking like three to five minutes he wept, got some Kleenex, rallied, and then like, let's go get him and rebuild some walls. That's not what happened. Three to five months he wept. Three to five months he prayed. Three to five months he fasted. That's the timeline we're given. Three to five months. You think 21 days is long? Try three to five months. Okay, three to five months, Nehemiah consistently went to the throne of grace and pounded the pavement and said, God, something has to be done. This is your city. This is your people. Something has to be done. And, and watch this. Nehemiah takes his agony over the brokenness of God's city, Jerusalem, and, his, and the brokenness of God's people in that city, and he takes his inability to do anything about it to the feet of the one who could. Listen, agony and inability is a fantastic place for the people of God to be because that's when we start praying. That's when we start relying on the Lord and his power and his strength and his grace is saying, Lord, this is the conundrum of following Jesus. This is the irony of Christian ministry is the very work that Jesus calls us to do, we can't do. Who's, whose job description is salvation? That's the Holy Spirit. On the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and applies the redemptive work of Jesus to the hearts of those that cry out to him for forgiveness and for his lordship over their lives. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's a supernatural act, not a natural act. And I know that I can hem and haw and get blue in the face and veins popping out of my forehead. But if the Lord's not moving, if his spirit's not in this room, if you're not grabbing coffee with someone and his presence is falling upon them as you're talking about who your God is and this person doesn't know Jesus, but this person experiences a peace and a presence they've never felt before, if God isn't there, nothing happens. So we need God. We take our agony. I want to see my friends come to know you. The joy I have in you, the life I have in you, the hope I have in you, the freedom from addiction and bondage that you've given me, Jesus, but I can't do it. I'll go, but you got to give me the words. I'll go, but you got to move. 
Salvation, whose job description is sanctification. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that sanctifies our lives. Right? We just talked about this last week. The new location, right? The Spirit of God taking up residence in our hearts, cleansing us from unrighteousness and conforming us and shaping us into the image of Jesus. It's a supernatural work. And so if I were to, this is what I'm getting at. If I were to ask, or we were to ask, why, Nehemiah, would you pray and fast for three to five months? Why would you pray and fast for three to five months? Is that, is that just kind of like a, a formality? Right? Like, oh, that's what just godly people do. Nehemiah's like, oh, I'm a godly person. Let me do three to five months of praying and fasting and seeking the Lord. Notice he says, he says he fasted and prayed and doesn't stop there. He says, I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It's relational. It's seeking God before the God of heaven. Sometimes we just seek the disciplines. And I'm not encouraging us to seek the discipline of fasting or seek the discipline of prayer. I'm talking about seeking God's face through those disciplines. There's a, there's an, there is a world of difference between those two things. Was it just a formality for Nehemiah? Checking the box, right? Sometimes we think prayer and fasting is, okay, let me check the box and then get to the real work of ministry. Let me check the box and let me roll my sleeves and let me get to work. Because that could have been Nehemiah's response, right? It could have been his response. He could have gone to the Lord. He could have heard this news. This is what I'm getting at. He could have, he could have heard this news of the walls being torn down. And sure, it mourned him. Maybe he prayed for a little bit. But then he would go about and create his own game plan and create his own strategy. Not run to the Lord for that. Not run to the Lord to humble himself and say, I'm a, I'm a slave in Persia. I have no ability to do anything. I don't have any rights. I don't get a vote in anything in my life. I am owned by the Persian Empire. So I, I can't do anything. But I'm burdened over this. So God, will you move? God, will you do something? Because what Nehemiah could have done would be like, all right, all right, fellas, Hanani and my brother, here's, here's the game plan. Everyone, everyone kneel beside me. And this is sometimes how we can, we can read into Nehemiah is make him the hero and, and, and all of us point to Nehemiah and not the God that Nehemiah sought that gave him the favor, right? And so he could say, hey, rally behind me. You get a little stick, the military guys, right? This is like what they teach you in military school. Like even if you have a whiteboard behind you, if you have a box of sand with a stick, that's when you do your game plan, right? Is that how that works? Okay, never mind. So, rally. He's got game plan. Okay, I'm going to poison the king. Good start. And, and then we're going to cause a mighty insurrection. I'm going to install myself somehow as king over Persia, and then I'm going to send all these re resources. Like, I'm just going to go get it done, right? And oftentimes, we build our, our lives like that. God, I'm going to do this. You bless it, okay? And God, in his grace to us, often does that, right? He's gracious to us. But there's key moments in our life where things are too insurmountable in front of us. We say, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for three to five months. And I've been trying and I've been thinking about things. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast. And I'm going to seek a supernatural power. I'm going to seek the living God, the present God. Because his hands are mighty to save, not mine. His power is far greater than my fleshly power. I need his faith. Look, go to Nehemiah. Let me, just, let me just illustrate this for you. Nehemiah, if you have your Bibles, go to Nehemiah um, chapter 2. I don't want anyone to hear me preach looking at Nehemiah is what I'm after because Nehemiah doesn't want that either, and I'll show you why. Nehemiah 2 and the verses 8. Watch this. And the king... We'll talk about this in two weeks. And the king granted me what I asked. Why? Why? The verse is not on screen. For the good hand of my God was upon me. The king granted the request of Nehemiah to begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Why did that happen? The only reason it happened is because God's grace and favor was over Nehemiah. That's the only reason why that happened. He waited three to five months. He didn't rush to the king's presence and do that. He waited on the Lord and sought out an opportunity and the Lord moved the heart of the king. Nehemiah gives glory to the Lord. And so that's what Nehemiah knew, is that he needed to seek God's face for three to five months, for God's favor, for God's provision, for God's direction, for God's guidance. He did not want to assume that his plans were God's plans. And this is what Psalm 127, one through two says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, labor, those who build it labor in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up in early, early and go uh, late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Excuse me. For he gives to his beloved sheep. And so before Nehemiah went to build a house, build a city for the Lord, he sought the Lord's face with three to five months of crying out and relying upon the sweet grace and provision and mercy of God. And so um, I'll I'll, uh, begin to transition into talking about what we're inviting you all into. We as the elders... um, we don't want to just assume, like, we have our plans, and there's no really big, massive, major decisions that are going to completely change. We're not, like, drifting into heresy or, you know, whatever, totally reordering all this stuff. But where we want to be, the posture that the elders of this church want to be is the same posture that Nehemiah had, is, Lord, there's a lot of brokenness out there. And there's a lot of people that don't know you, Jesus. There's a lot of marriages that I believe you want to restore. There's a lot of kids that you want to give brand-new parents There's those in a juvenile detention center that are waiting for beautiful feet, Romans 10 says, to go in there and just love them relationally with the love that we've been shown for Jesus. And we don't want to assume that our plans, our wisdom is the only thing we're going to rely upon. No, we want to humble ourselves for 21 days and fast and seek the Lord's guidance and open up everything in regards to the church of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And and as you do that, I'm really excited to see what God does because here's the beautiful thing, transit family. God has a beautiful plan for this transit family. You guys know that, right? Like Jesus himself has a beautiful plan for this body of believers. What if, what if Jesus wants to build something beautiful in, and is building and wants to build it here and also for those out there, right? What if Jesus has a beautiful plan for us? And what if through this sermon series, as we seek his face collectively, he begins to slowly unveil what that is to us, right? And here's the far more exciting thing about relying on the real God and the living God um, for uh, leadership over a body of believers is that this is what we see in the book of Acts, right? The spirit of God led the people on mission, led them, I mean, in, in miraculous ways. And that same God is still doing the same things today. So with that said, we wanted to do this, is to start off this sermon series by inviting all of you to join the elders for a 21-day corporate fast beginning tomorrow, August 1st. Now, a couple disclaimers. One, this is just an invitation. It is not obligatory, okay? So don't feel, don't do this out of guilt. Don't do this because we said it. Don't do that because anyone else is doing. What I invite you guys to do is ask Jesus, seek the Lord, and say, Lord, is this something you want me to do? Do you want me to do this? And do it with sincerity of heart. Please don't do it because you feel obligated. This is, a, this is a, a grace-based community. We're all under the shadow of the same cross and in need of the same grace. So there's no judgment if you're like, hey, I'm not in a season. It's too busy. Life's too crazy. There's too much stuff going on with my extended family right now for me to just whatever, okay? So don't do it out of obligation. Secondly, a 21-day fast does not mean you're not eating anything for 21 days, Okay? So everyone take a, whew, like, breathe the deep sigh of relief. That doesn't mean you're not eating anything for 21 days. I'm, I'm going to eat, okay? Um, <clears throat> there's various ways that you can fast for 21 days. It can be, um, I, I wouldn't recommend not eating for 21 days. You should go consult your physician before you set about doing that, okay? What I would say is this, is that there's creative ways to fast. You could do, like, the Daniel fast, which is fasting from certain unhealthy foods and for 21 days really trimming down your diet, like fasting maybe from coffee and chocolate and caffeine or sugar, you could do that. You could fast on certain days of the week or certain meals throughout the week for 21 days. Like, hey, on Monday, I'm gonna do a full 24-hour fast. And then on Thursday, I'm gonna do a 16-hour fast. And uh, it could, it could, there's a, a myriad of different options of what the Lord puts on your heart and what you want to do. And then there's other ways you can fast too. You can fast from media. You can fast from, hey, for 21 days, you know what? <clears throat> I'm gonna stop watching the news and reading the news like 15 times a day. And I'm going to maybe get off social media. And maybe I'm going to not watch Netflix. Or maybe if I'm really into reading books, I'm just going to stop reading books. And I'm just going to read the scriptures for 21 days. There's other ways that we can fast, right? And what fasting is, is it's, it's clearing out the clutter in our hearts of false passions and false loves and all that thing. It's clearing out the clutter so that we can connect more with the living God. 
It's saying, saying Lord, it's, it's dialing back the physical so we can dial up the spiritual. And I'll tell you what, um, on a 24-hour fast, when you're not eating, you have a whole lot more time to pray and seek the Lord um, with those hunger pains. And what it also does is it, fasting, what fasting puts us in the posture of realizing our inability and our dependence upon God, our inability to do anything apart from the dependence and reliance upon God. Because just fast for a couple days and you realize that all it takes to take you down is a couple days without food, right? To completely mess up your entire life. That's how dependent we are upon food, upon water. So what it is is saying, Lord, we are created beings, but we want to see your eternal kingdom come in power through us. And so would you, would you meet us here as we posture our hearts to seek your face. And so with that said, we want this to be a, this corporate fast. This is the first time we've done this, and I'm, really, I'm actually really excited about this, is we want it to be a community project. We don't want all of us to just leave and kind of fast in isolation and not let anyone know about it. So if you want in on this, go and pray and, and talk about it, maybe with friends and family members, all stuff. But if you want in, uh, let's fast together in our community groups. We're taking the month of August off, so there's more time. Uh, for us to maybe connect over this fast. And so what we're saying is, if you want to partake in this fast, is reach out to your community group leader and other community groups to get some fasting fellowship, okay? Create some camaraderie and, 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 and some accountability and some encouragement in those groups. So we're encouraging everyone, if you are doing this fast, to get really plugged into your community groups and communicate to your community group leader. And as you're fasting and seeking God's face and you feel like God's giving you some guidance on uh, maybe some directions for community group ministry or department leader stuff or future stuff, outreach stuff, then talk to your community group leaders and all the community group leaders that you talk to will come and talk to the elders and talk to me. That's kind of the feedback loop that we have. There's over 100 of y'all, and I can't say 100 people email me for the next 21 days. That'd be chaos. But I can talk to your community group leaders. And if you're not involved in a community group leader, involved in a community group, go online, find a group that's closest to you, and reach out. Find a group and join a group and reach out and start joining the group on this, on this fast. So I'm really excited uh, about this because it starts with a burden, right? A burden of Jesus. You say in your word that you have the power to save. Are we content, transit family, with, with the amount of people that are coming to know Jesus in this body of believers, right? Are we content with that? Is our king and his his gospel far greater, right? His power so present to transform our lives. And so our prayer as we fast for the next 21 days, let's pray for these three things. I invite you to pray for these three things. Please take, please take notes over this. Please pray for the transit church, the elders and the leaders, and continually ask, Lord, what's the letter that you're writing to the transit family in this season? What's the direction you want us to go? Where are you encouraging us? Where are you strengthening us. It's not just rebuke and critique. If you know the heart of Jesus, more often than not, when you expect a rebuke, you're getting encouragement and you're getting applause. You're going to keep fighting, keep contending. What's the letter? Pray for the church. Pray for the elders. Pray for the leaders. Pray over our witness in the city and pray over yourself as you seek the Lord. Jesus says when the disciples came from the Mount of, down of, uh, came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples couldn't cast a demon out of uh, a demonized individual. And Jesus said to him, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And so for you, if there's a stronghold of addiction in your life that you can't overcome 21 days, day in and day out with the hunger pains and all those things, cry out to God and say, God, would you fully set me free from this addiction? For these next 21 days, would you take your apathy and your comfort? The world's on fire. We know there's brokenness all around us and we often are kind of indifferent and we're indifferent and just sipping and swirling, if you will, the wine in the, the king's palace. Lord, here's my apathy for 21 days. What do you have to say about this? God, supernaturally, give me your heart. Give me your heart for the lost and the broken. And let's pray for others. Let's pray for a renewal of the Holy Spirit to come upon this church and the churches in America and the churches globally for a mighty move of God's spirit to come, a work of renewal. Let's pray for our community, the Juvenile Detention Center. Pray over for the nations welcoming Afghan refugees. Let's pray over Bryn Mawr Elementary School, all the nations represented there, uh, all those wrestling with food insecurity on the weekends. Let's, let's just seek the Lord and pray, Lord, what are you inviting us to? Jesus, lead us. What do you want for me? What do you want for the church? What are you, where are you leading us to shine brightly in this community? And then I'll conclude with this. So, band, you can come on up. What if, what if at the end of, the, of this 21-day fast, as we collectively approach the throne of grace, 
What if, what if we see God show up in powerful ways? What if we see addictions broken off of people's lives? Marriages restored. What if we see the lost saved in miraculous ways? Maybe people we've been sharing our faith with for 20 years, and all of a sudden God just powerfully meets them in a moment with them. What if we see that? What if in these next 21 days we see doors that were shut for such a long time open for us to bring the hope of Jesus? And what if by his spirit God gives us crystal clear direction on what he's inviting us into? in this next season. He's done it throughout his word. He's done it throughout his word and he can do it again with us, right? Why not us? And why not now in this season, okay? So with that said, let's posture our hearts to receive what God has for us. And let's pray and let's prepare our hearts for communion. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper. And the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, commend us, exhort us to, uh, to not take and partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner but to kind of get our hearts right before the Lord, uh, before we take this meal. So go silent, um, receive a fresh pardon for your sins. The hope of the gospel is that everyone who confesses their sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I'll go silent and let you all prepare your hearts for this celebration of the Lord's Supper. Father, we come before you grateful, Lord Jesus, for your forgiveness, Lord Jesus, that you came and entered into our brokenness. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of fellowship with you, the gift of salvation. And Father, have you, how you have restored the brokenness of our lives. When we were living in sin and wickedness, our hearts kind of hardened to you and turned from you, uh, the walls were essentially torn down in our lives. Our lives were a heap of ruins. But then you came. There came a moment in our lives, maybe a, a day where uh, a college friend shared the gospel with us or a family member invited us to a meeting or to a community group or a church. And there's a day that came where everything changed, where we encountered your love. And you didn't, you didn't do what all the other gods do and point your finger at us and demand that, hey, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and and begin to rebuild everything that you tore down. No, you came and rebuilt it for us. And it wasn't your destruction. It wasn't your sin. It wasn't uh, yours to take on your shoulders. But Jesus, you did that for us. And that's why we're here, not in our sin, but in your grace, Lord Jesus. So we open up our hands and we say, Lord Jesus, lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake, God. Over this fast, for those of us who, are, who you're wooing and calling, to dig deeper relationally with you these next 21 days. Lord, I just pray for an increase of your presence upon us, that, that you would be the reward of what we're seeking, that as we draw near to you, your word promises that you draw near to us. And so I pray for those in this room that have been walking with you for a long time, but they haven't felt your presence. And maybe it's been a while since they've heard the still small whisper of your voice that in this fast, as they clear out the noise and clear out the clutter, that they would experience your love again. You turn the flame on in their heart again. You set them on fire again, Lord God, that the reward would be you, Jesus. And as we're transformed these next 21 days, as you transform us by your spirit, that you would use us to go be agents of transformation in this church and through this church, Lord Jesus. You're the reward of the fast. You're what we're after. We're not after a fast. We're not even after blueprints. We're after you, Jesus, your presence. So come and change us. We lay our lives, Romans 12, afresh on the altar in prayer and fasting. We weaken ourselves. We go low. And Lord, you visit the lowly. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So I pray, Lord, that as we draw near in humility and sincerity, that you would draw near to us and bring transformation here and now 
with the people in this room, with the transit church. And as you do that, clothe us in power and in genuine love and compassion for those outside the four walls of this church. And may your kingdom come in love and power. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, before we take communion, I want to share this. It talks about the ministry of Jesus, the incarnation, the work that he came to do. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And the bottom line is, for those of us in Christ Jesus, that's what this meal represents is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, where this represents uh, two things, the truth of our brokenness. In our sin, our city was in a heap of ruins. We were separated from God, and this is what it took to rebuild the walls. And it wasn't Jesus's wickedness. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his ruin. Uh, it was ours. And what Jesus did, the great exchange of the gospel, is God taking on human form, the Son of God coming and descending and taking on our sin and our brokenness so that in return we could get him, we could get eternal life and salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. That's why we want to remember this. Remember that we are under grace and saved by the grace of God alone, but understanding that it's his work of rebuilding and not our own, that he's done it and we just receive it. And so let's receive that work now of our Savior with hearts of adoration and reverence to our King. This is Christ's body broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for your sins and mine. Amen. Let's conclude with one final song of worship.